Holy and loving God, help us to understand more of those greater realities that are beyond our full comprehension. But we may glimpse, we may understand more. And we pray that not only would we have an understanding, but we would have an excitement, an anticipation, a deepening of our hopes and our confidence in you. We pray this in our Lord Jesus' name. Amen. We're continuing exploring God's mission plan, and especially as it's been reflected in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And today we're coming to the second half of Paul's long sentence. It runs from verse 3 in chapter 1 right through to the end of verse 14. Although we're not going to finish this sentence this week, we're going to have two more verses next week, um, 13 and 14, because it is so rich to what it uh, touches upon and what it begins to introduce by way of the richness of the gospel. I want to focus today especially on two more words. Last week we had grace and peace, grace as being the means, the way in which God Uh, provides the fullness of the kingdom, the fullness of the blessings that God has promised. And peace is the qualitative term. It describes um, the what. It is the, uh, the blessings that God has promised in creation, in redemption, and now in the fullness of time. This week we're going to focus on heaven and earth and how they relate to each other. But especially I'm going to focus on the notion of heaven because we really haven't been um, well helped by the caricatures of heaven that we sometimes see, whether it's the cartoon version of people floating around on clouds with angels with strange-looking harps and other things like that. That is not at all what heaven is, uh, how it's expressed in the Bible. In fact, it's not even helped by a lot of the, the 19th century romanticised versions of heaven as well. So we want to focus on what does the Bible mean when it uses the language of heaven. And essentially, it's talking about a, a sphere of existence that is beyond our present experience of life. It is a present reality. Heaven isn't best understood as where we go when we die. That's further towards that that reality. But heaven is talking about a here and now experience, a realm that is bigger than our experience of earth and all the limitations of earth. Heaven is is, uh, expressed in the Bible as the dwelling place of God. So perhaps the closest we get to it in, our, in, in language that we can make sense of, it is where God dwells, the house of God, the home where God resides and prepares a place for us. Back in the Genesis, Genesis narratives in Genesis 2, there is the uh, Eden is the residence of God and the, the rivers flow out of Eden The Garden of Eden is in the close proximity of where God dwells and because it's close to where God dwells, it flourishes. It has the qualities of God's presence in that space. 
So heaven is uh, where the, the heavenly courts gather, but in, in particular, it is where all that, that God's will um, expects and seeks is the reality. Remember we described Shalom as that place where the fullness, the flourishing, the prosperity, the fruitfulness, the being replenished, all that, that bundle of notions that we described as through the language of Shalom, all the, the blessings of creation coming to fruition, that is something of the quality of what heaven is talking about. That becomes a real experience. But we are very conscious that the world and as we experience life doesn't look like that. We have the, the realities of, of death and grief. We have the realities of ageing and wearing out. We have the realities of uh, discord and of conflict and of people falling out with each other and patterns of, um, of grievance and retaliation and those who seek to do power plays and all those types of realities. So how does the heavenly reality relate to the earthly experience at the present time? And this is what Paul begins to express in this part of this long sentence. And uh, it is so rich that if you can dwell on every single sort of point. Um, I am planning to write a book. I've written the first two or three pages that was a year ago. Uh, and each year I have my resolution that this will be the year that I'm actually going to write my book. Uh, the book is planned to be called um, Our Gospel is Too Small. Our Gospel is Too Small. Some of you may recall that uh, in the 1950s and 60s there was a book by J.B. Phillips called Your God is Too Small, saying that our we have a very domesticated view of God. We need to enlarge our understanding of God. In the 1980s, a book was written by someone called John Young who said that uh, our, God, our God is still too small. Not that God is small, but our understanding, the way we think about God is, is too limited. And I think the same is true of our understanding of the gospel. We've been using this image of the tree of life and now we've been using it as our image for St. Matthew's of what our vision is, what energises us about it. The tree of life at the centre of the Garden of Eden is life-giving. The roots of the tree aren't just supporting and sustaining the growth of the tree. It is supporting the whole ecosystem that comes within that forest as roots do. Amazing uh, new understanding of how roots speak to other plants and reach out for plants that are stricken and can provide energy to them as well. But have you ever had a go at pruning something and you realise it's not going well? You know, you go, you've viewed Gardening Australia or whatever and you've seen uh, Costa go in and just, you know, snip away and you think, oh, that looked easy. Give it a go and you start snipping away inside one part of a tree and think, oh... That's out of balance. I have a go at the other side and that's not quite right. And before you know it, you've got a stump with a few stalks coming out the side. I actually think that's what we do to the gospel. We keep minimalising it, tripping it uh, trimming it back, 
And uh, there are debates as to what is the, the core gospel. Is it just that we can have confidence that we are saved and will be able to be received into heaven? Things are right between us and God and anything else is additional to the gospel but not the gospel itself. I actually don't think you can limit the gospel like that. We do have a very reductionist gospel. We tend to limit it to just the spiritual realm, not the physical world around us. We separate the gospel from care of creation and all these other dimensions. We separate it from social world and communities and all those types of things. I actually don't think we, could, we should be doing that. So as we look at the, uh, the nature, the, the tree of life becomes one and the same as a gospel tree because the, the grace and peace, the shalom that's talked about as the gospel is the expression of the tree of life, being fruitful as well. So let's look at this uh, gospel tree and explore how it reaches out. So to use the imagery we're going to touch on, it is well grounded in the realities of this world, but it reaches to the heavens. It is an enormous tree. In fact, it bridges the heavens and the earth as well. We have some spectacular trees in this part of Adelaide along Second Creek. Um, they've been there for hundreds of years, four or five hundred years. They are stunning as they reach out as well. As you look at them, just remind ourselves that that's a, a symbol of our growing into the greater reality of heaven as well. Okay, that was one as well. I noted that from last week. I'll, if I was video editing it, I would have snipped that bit off. So, grace and peace to you, the terms we looked at last week, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The grace is that we have nothing that we can bring to God, bring to the table to negotiate with God, nothing that God requires. God wants us to come with empty hands to receive the great gifts that God, God is the ultimate giver in that space. And Paul continues in verse 3, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And the rest of Ephesians unpacks what that looks like. One little uh, thing to note about that word, every spiritual blessing. Again, we tend to misunderstand some of those terms as though things that are a spiritual blessing aren't tangible. They're not uh, flesh and blood. They're not something we can hold. The word that's used here for spiritual, it's a type of word that isn't describing the properties about something. It's not saying that it's uh, some sort of... Uh, uh, existence that's not material it's not the opposite of physical or material it means blessings that come through the spirit it is animated it is driven it is given vitality through the spirit all that all the blessings of God that the spirit brings and provides to us we'll see it in a number of weeks time when we get to chapter five and we look at how Paul uh, encourages the Corinthians to be, to be filled by the Spirit, 
We often understand it to be filled with the Spirit as though we're some sort of uh, drinking glass and the Spirit comes and pours into us. No, the Spirit does the filling of all that is life-giving, the blessings that we receive. We receive through the Spirit in Christ. So we're picking it up halfway through verse 8 where Paul continues talking about these spiritual blessings with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ. Now the language of mystery is often understood as something that we'll never understand. It is so mysterious that it is beyond any understanding. That may be how the word is used in the wider context. You know, there's all sorts of mysteries and books and novels and, and things of that nature. But whenever the New Testament refers to mysteries, it's using it in a particular way. A mystery in the New Testament is something that of ourselves we would be totally unable to understand or to, to view but has now been revealed by God. So important to understand this in the New Testament. The mysteries are now opened up so we can gaze upon them and come to an understanding of them. In the ancient world, there were mystery cults. They're like some of those associations. There's still one over on the parade. I'm not sure what it is. It's sort of water buffaloes or something. Um, you know, the guilds where you go to and you have to have the secret understanding and the handshake to be entered into and all those types of things before you get to know the mysteries. Those mystery cults were, were rife in the, uh, the ancient world. You go into Corinth, into Ephesus. These guilds and associations were all about the place. Against that, Paul in the other New Testament writers saying, these are not mysteries for an elect few. These are mysteries that are available to everyone. They have been revealed according to his, good, his pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. So if that's what we are looking and entering into, when will these things come to be? Paul continues, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfilment. They are coming. We are closer to those realisations. We begin to experience the, the beginnings of that, the, these spiritual blessings. But we have not experienced the fullness of them, the completion. Bishop Tom Wright, the, uh, the, the theologian and amazing New Testament scholar, puts it in these terms. He says, it's like we arrive, to, the sun rises on the horizon and it's beginning to gain in strength. But we've yet to experience the fullness of the noon sun in its strength. We find hope as we do with a sunrise, as the day emerges. So think of it in those terms, that these, the fullness of this experience is still growing in strength. It's very real, it's still very present, although it's not entirely part of our own experience. Perhaps you like on the other side of the, the moon, as they describe. So do you put in effect when the times reach their fulfilment? 
what is this mystery that has now been revealed that reveals God's mission, God's purpose? It is this wonderful verse. Verse 10 is the most amazing verse. God's mission, God's purpose is to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. This greater heavenly reality where all is good and right and where there is no more of the, uh, the things that cause grief and things that separate and, and damage and the messiness of this world. That experience, this dimension of heaven, breaks into the reality of earth. Jan has got a lovely piece on the, uh, the front page of the welcome sheet where she describes the, how it gets so close it's almost like a thin barrier, a transparent barrier when you begin to glimpse it at times. You see, in Scripture, heaven is opened on various occasions. It was opened for Moses at Mount Sinai, so much so that when he went into the presence of God in a tent of meeting, he came out and his face was glowing, it was so radiant the people said, put a veil on, we can't cope with it. You're too bright, we can't cope with it. We see it in various moments like in Daniel where he sees the, the host of heavens when he glimpses the angelic realm of Michael and all angels, that they are there and he can glimpse them as well. That was a legitimate use of as well. I'm just, just noting. Sorry, that's a bit of an in-joke. I have a habit of saying the phrase as well when I'm trying to reduce the number of times I use that phrase. Working on it. So the heavenly realm is something that is actually a reality that at times, like Stephen, when he was martyred before his death, the heavens were opened up before he died and he glimpsed that what was to come. There are occasions when people are facing persecution at the church who talk about becoming aware of the, the heavenly hosts and the nearness of heaven in those moments. There are occasions in which uh, people who have never met a Christian in their life in the Middle East and elsewhere have had revealed to them in dreams these greater realities and have come to faith and turned up at churches for the first time saying, tell me more about this Jesus there are occasions when the world would say the least likely people glimpse those realities. In our case, our son John has moments in which he sees Jesus. Um, sometimes in dreams, sometimes at the end of his bed, on one occasion when he was in hospital as well. We try and press him on it and say, tell us more, what did he say, what did he look like? He said, oh no, it's personal. And I know we're not alone in that. We all have moments, I suspect, when we just become aware of that presence. Even that, uh, someone described it after the 8.30 service this morning. said, you know, when I was singing that hymn, I just had a shiver go up my spine as though it was the Spirit just reminding me of that presence, the nearness of it as well. To bring unity to all things in heaven on earth. Heaven will break into this, this earthly reality and transform it until it becomes the fullness of the renewed creation, all that is intended to become. But is that the reality of the world as we look out today? Is there any other name or person or agency or organisation 
that is able to bring such unity into our world? Can the United Nations do it? Sadly, I don't have great hope. Can any superpower do it? Can any other figure gather the, the love and the respect and the trust of all people and all cultures? I firmly believe that it is the name of Jesus, the work, the person, the example, the teaching, and all that Jesus has done by way of defeating all that was thrown against him. It is the name of Jesus that regardless of where we've come from and whether we are a success or whether we've messed up life or whether we've been uh, dealt some difficult cards to play in life or whether things have gone well, whether we're from one culture for another or one language or another, one time from another, none of that separates us from this work of God in Jesus. The gathering God is still at work, gathering across the ages. Our little outpost here at St. Matthew's when we gather as God's people, whether in church or for other reasons, is part of a heavenly company. Our voices join their voices across the ages, those who have gone before us, those who have gone ahead of us, and those who are yet to come. We are being gathered into this amazing work of God. In him we were also chosen. Not because God looked out and said, oh, I'm going to choose the pick of the crop. I'll choose you and I'll choose you and I'll choose you and you're doing pretty well. I'll have you as well. Nothing like that. Whenever the language of being chosen is used in the New Testament, it is being used not as a way of saying, oh, lucky you. It is being used to say, we are chosen for a task. God says, I have a task, a mission. There is work to be done. And I'm calling you to be part of that work and that mission. In him, we were also chosen. And as we recognise in each other, brothers and sisters in Christ, fellow workers, partners in this mission and ministry, as we extend that to other churches that we know and realise we're in this together. In fact, we're in this together in a global church. There is no us and them within this work of God. Let us be encouraged. Let us be exhilarated by the thought. Let us be open to glimpses of God's presence that is so close. And let us have a resolve to be about that work the way in which we live our life and we go about being a church that is worthy of the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.